Let's see if everybody can see that. Okay. So uh, we are looking still in chapter four, and we should finish that easily tonight. And then we'll move on to chapter five. And we said we're dealing with two main doctrines here in uh, this epistle, justification and sanctification. And uh, we see that justification is the main theme of 4.125, where we're in chapter four. Uh, we could, I could call Roman number three justification. It's commonly to call it something about righteousness because Paul talks about uh, we, we need this righteousness from God. Paul says in verse 17, for in the gospel of chapter one, the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God is being revealed. And so now he explains that in one through four the revealing, the revelation, how this came about, how this doctrine of justification. And we noticed we spent a long, long time on 118 through, through chapter three there talking about, first part of chapter three, uh, the need uh, before he explains the actual fact of justification by faith alone. He explains why we need it. And then he uh, explains the fact of justification or the righteousness that comes from God in the gospel in that famous passage in 321 through 31. And finally, in chapter four, Paul wants to use an example of Abraham. Abraham was the great patriarch of the Jewish people, and they looked to him as the example of someone they believed, the rabbis taught, at least in Jesus' time and afterward, that Abraham had somehow kept the law before the law was even given. And so they looked upon him as the perfect example of someone who kept the law, and that's how you would be right with God. And Paul wants to show, no, Abraham established his relationship with God by faith, that he was justified by faith. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, and it was counted, imputed to him for righteousness. And so uh, we saw that in the first part of chapter four, Abraham's justification is to be explained by faith, not by works. And uh, verses uh, nine through 12, we're ready to look at tonight. Uh, it's not dependent on circumcision. So remember, these are the two things that Jews commonly talked about. And you see that in Paul's previous epistle, when he wrote, before he wrote this epistle in about 56, in AD 49, Paul wrote his very first epistle that's, that we have recorded in the New Testament. That was the epistle to the Galatians. And you remember what he's arguing in the book of Galatians is that you don't have to keep the law or be circumcised to be saved. So they were these Judaizers false teachers who claimed to be Christians, but were Jews also, Jewish people, who came into the area of Galatia that Paul evangelized on his first missionary journey. And they were saying, yeah, you got you to trust Jesus, but first you also have to be circumcised and keep the law. And Paul says, no, that's another gospel. And now he returns to that here because those are the two things that Jews relied upon so much was 
were was keeping the law and the fact that they were circumcised and thus they were members of the Abrahamic covenant and that sort of was a blanket that covered them over. This has so many parallels and Martin Luther saw it to what he saw in Roman Catholicism and many religions, you know, I was baptized. So therefore, you know, that's like circumcision. I was baptized. So therefore I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm on the right track with God and so forth. But Paul says it's not dependent on circumcision. So I say now here in the notes, Paul now notes another significant aspect of the reckoning of Abraham's faith for righteousness it took place before he was circumcised. Abraham's circumcision took place, remember in Genesis 17, if you remember the book of Genesis, how the story develops there, the narrative, 15 years after Genesis 15, when we read that statement, Abraham believed God and it was counted, imputed to him for righteousness. So in this sense, Paul can claim that Abraham is the father of all believers, not just Jews, because he's going to say, Abraham believed God before he was ever a Jew. What marks a Jew off is circumcision. <laughs> it's part of the Abrahamic covenant. All males are circumcised on the eighth day and so forth. But Abraham was really a man of faith, righteousness by faith, before he was ever technically part, before the Abrahamic covenant, before he was a Jew, as we think of it today. So verse 9, is this blessedness of salvation, of justification, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, Paul asked. This was a rhetorical question. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or was it before? Well, it was not after, but before. Anybody who knows the Old Testament knows that Genesis 17 comes after Genesis 15. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had faith. The circumcision didn't create the faith. It was a sign or a seal that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So I say here, Abraham became partaker of the blessedness of acceptance before God mentioned by David in the preceding verses when he was justified by faith. And this justification came to him while he was still uncircumcised. Oh, I see somebody's writing on my screen here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Who's being a bad person? And uh, is it Linda Davis? I don't know. Somebody's writing on my screen here. <laughs> oh, can I uh, clear that? Just uh, clear it afterwards. Okay. Annotate. I see. Can't. Uh... All right. Got that. Okay. Um. So, um, so the order here was the spiritual experience of faith, justification, then circumcision. Right? We can think of this as much like ours. 
Ours is faith, justification, and then baptism. You don't put the baptism first. From the fact that Abraham's justification preceded the initiation of the rite of circumcision, two conclusions may be drawn. First, concerns the universality of the by-faith method of justification. In the experience of Abraham, we see the justification of an uncircumcised Gentile, not of a circumcised Jew, because Genesis 15 is before his circumcision in Genesis 17. The second conclusion concerns the true meaning of circumcision. It's a sign, a seal of the righteousness he had by faith. It was a seal placed on the righteousness he gained by means of the instrument of faith. So circumcision therefore has no merit or essential value. It can't affect one standing or entrance into the people of God. Um, it doesn't mean that you're a person, it doesn't even mean you're belonging to God unless you have the previous act of faith, of justifying faith. That's the same thing is true in baptism. You can be baptized, but it's of no value if you don't have the previous work of justifying faith. Verse 11, so then he is the father, while 11b, of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So I say these verses depict Abraham as the spiritual father of all believers, both Gentiles and Jews. Because Abraham believed while he was uncircumcised, he is the father of all Gentile believers. Because he believed and was also circumcised, he is qualified to be the father of all Jewish believers. So Paul claims that, at least in this spiritual sense, not in the actual sense, uh, but in the spiritual sense, he is the father of anyone who believes and only those who believe. Is he really their spiritual father? Uh, it's through faith and not through incorporation into the nation of Israel that one becomes Abraham's spiritual child. So Gentiles only need to exercise the same faith that Abraham exercised in this case. Then he says, Abraham's justification is was not uh, dependent on circumcision, and it's apart from the Mosaic law. Verse 13, it was not through the law, not by keeping the law, that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So I'll say this verse states the proposition that's developed in this paragraph. The promise given to Abraham was secured by faith and not by keeping the law. Now, through the law, Paul, of course, means here the Mosaic law. The promise is defined by the words that he would be heir of the world. Uh, now, I say here, there is no promise in Genesis expressed exactly in those words that he would be heir of the world. Paul is sort of summarizing uh, what the text of the Old Testament says about Abraham. It says like in Genesis 17, four, um, uh, that you, well, it's, it, you know, these promises say that, 
the key promises of the, the key provisions of the Abraham, of the promises to Abraham, would he would be, uh, he would have a large number of descendants, that he would be uh, his, uh, this, he would embrace many nations, uh, he would possess the land, uh, he, would be the, he would be the medium that all people on the earth would be blessed. And of course, that's coming, that's the coming through becoming Messiah. So things like you will be the father of many nations, I'm giving you this land, all peoples and earth would bless through you, ultimately through Christ and so forth. Um, we know that Jews commonly believe that uh, because of the promises to Abraham, they would inherit the world one day. Uh, but Paul sees these promises as relating to the whole world as being fulfilled by both Jews and Gentiles as they put their faith in Jesus Christ. It goes on in verse 14, he says, For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. That is, if you can gain these promises, if you can gain the promises to Abraham through the law, faith is worthless. Uh, means nothing, and the promise will ultimately be worthless. Well, why is that? Well, verses 14 and 15 explain why the promise could not be attained by keeping the law. In verse 14, two things are specifically said. First, to make the promise depend on the law is to make, the, make faith of no value, that is useless. Second, to make the promise depend on the law is to nullify the promise, rule it out together. So why are faith and the promises, why, why is that rendered futile or useless if Jews apart from the faith are the heirs? Well, the reason that we've been talking about the logic of Romans 1 through 3 and the explanation that we'll see in verse 15 about the law is that um, if it's dependent upon the law, no one would receive these promises or the benefits of the promises to Abraham because no one can keep the law sufficiently, as we've talked about. No one can keep the law perfectly, sufficiently, in order to inherit the promises. Uh, That's just futile. It's just impossible because of inherent depravity, as we've talked about. We can't, no one can keep the law sufficiently. So Paul is saying that if it's the case that the inheritance is to be based on uh, adherence to the law, then there won't be any heirs because fallen human beings like us uh, are not able to adequately keep the law, adhere to the law, and that means that faith is exercised in vain, the promise is unfulfilled. Verse 15, and here's the problem more fully explained that if it depends on the law, there won't, nothing will be fulfilled because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the first clause of this verse explains why the inheritance cannot be gained through the law. The law brings wrath. It doesn't bring blessings. It brings wrath because people fail to keep the law. In Jewish theology, the law was looked upon in a very positive sense even to the point of securing salvation. It is this function of the law that Paul is here countering. The Mosaic law is far from a positive factor since it turns sins into transgressions. So the law doesn't really bring uh, salvation. It doesn't bring the promises. 
it brings actual wrath because, as I say, it turns sins into transgressions. The law, like all positive concrete laws that spell out what God demands and what he requires, um, renders us even more accountable to God if we see these positive commands, in other words. So there's a distinction in Paul's vocabulary between sin and transgression. Transgression is crossing a line, uh, uh, evading, going, going, going where you're not supposed to. Here's a sign that says, don't walk on the grass, and you walk on the grass. So here's some grass. You might walk on it, and, you know, it, 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 it may not, it, it may be wrong. <laughs> there may be a law that says you can't walk on this grass. There's, an, it's, there's a law on the books, but once you see that sign and the sign says don't walk on the cross, then you have transgressed. And so the, a law makes a, a sin more serious. It makes it, it turns it into a transgression. It means to go beyond. You have transgressed what God, you've crossed the boundary. And so it turns something into a very positive thing that you have done. Um, so what Paul is saying here is um, where there's no deliberate disobedience of any positive commands, there's really no positive commands to disobey. But here we do have positive commands given by God in the Mosaic law, and therefore we're more responsible. We're guilty of, as I say here, when Paul says, where there is no law, there's no transgression, he clearly does not mean that there was therefore no sin apart from the Mosaic law. Romans 5.13 clearly teaches that sin was in the world before the law was given. The law was simply made things worse, brings wrath, because sin is now a violation of specific written commandments. Uh, so in the Garden of Eden, God hadn't given Cain uh, a, a law, as far as we know, that said, you shall not kill, but he did kill. <laughs> he still sinned, but he didn't actually violate a transgression, a written transgression that we know of. Uh, it's still wrong, but it's, it's even more wrong when there is actually a, a law, a, trans, a specific boundary that you're crossing. Um, so, uh, the law simply makes things worse. I've said here brings wrath because law is now a violation of specific written commandments. All sin brings wrath as Romans one has taught us. The law just makes things worse. So rather than rescuing people from the sentence of condemnation, the law confirms their condemnation. For by stating clearly and in great detail exactly what God requires of us, the law renders people more accountable to God than they were without it. And Paul will stress that same kind of logic in several places here. So any attempt to obtain the promise, the promises of, that God made to Abraham, the promises of salvation by keeping the law are always going to be frustrated because of human disobedience. Verse 16, therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. 
not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith, the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is the father in the sight of God in whom we believe. He is our father in the sight of God. So verses 14 and 15 have explained that the promises cannot be obtained by keeping the law. In verse 16a, Paul concludes that the promise must therefore be by faith. This was God's plan so that ultimately it might be by grace. The latter part of verse 16 introduces a further, further promise, so that it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. This specifies the ultimate end that God had in view in making the promise inheritance to be dependent on faith so it might be according to grace. It was to make the promise guaranteed to all Abraham's offsprings. The blessings, you know, they, they, the blessings wouldn't have come to pass uh, if it had depended on man's work of obedience to the law. Now here, Abraham's offspring, we're talking about Jews and Gentiles. Abraham is the father of all of us by faith. We're his offspring spiritually. The first part of verse 17 is a quote from Genesis 17, 5, uh, where Paul says, I have made you a father of many nations, and confirms that Abraham is the spiritual father of both Jews and Gentiles. So God's intention was to open up the promises to Abraham to all people. And this could only be happen if the Mosaic law is no longer the institution that this Mosaic law is an institution because that was restricted to Israel. Um, so it can't be by the law. So he's tried to say it can't be by circumcision. It can't be by the promises can't come by keeping the law. He says now, uh, number four, it was not dependent on sight. He's making a transition here. The God in the middle of the verse, I've divided it, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Paul shifts in verse 17 from the fatherhood of Abraham, that's the first part of the verse, to the kind of faith that made Abraham a worthy father, the character of Abraham's father. The focal point of the discussion of Abraham's faith has to do with its object. The God in whom he believed is a God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not, he says. It's only because God, he knew God to be this kind of God that Abraham could have believed the promise that he would be the father of many nations. You know, from a human point of view, uh, it was impossible. It was an impossible fulfillment. It would be like raising the dead. Abraham's 100 years old, and God says, hey, you're going to have a child. Your wife's going to have a child. Uh, no, that's, that's humanly possible at that particular age. So, but it says Abraham believed God who calls into being things that were not. Uh, we're not, you know, it's not clear exactly what that is, but it's, it means calling non-existent things into being. Most likely he's talking about the birth of Isaac. You know, God made something that was impossible. He produced Isaac when it was humanly, physically impossible to be done. He called things into being that were not in existence and were not possible. Verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's referring back to Genesis where he says, 
Count the stars, Abraham. Look at the stars in heaven. So shall your offspring be. So the emphasis in this verse falls on the paradoxical description of Abraham's faith as against all hope, yet at the same time in hope. As Paul is going to explain here just now in verse 19, Abraham, as we said, had every reason from a human point of view to give up the attempt to produce a child through Sarah. You know, his faith flew in the face of that hope that's based on ordinary human experience. We might hope for things. Uh, we might think they're, you know, as potentialities. We often say, you know, I, ha I hope I can get a new car. I hope I can get a new car. Uh, is how we commonly use the thing. And so he says, uh, he says that um, against all hope, expectation. Yet his faith, we learn here, was based on the hope that sees beyond circumstances here to rest on the promise of God. Now, it's not blind faith. Uh, faith that, Abraham's faith is not a leap into the dark. See, that's the theme of so much literature, so much stuff, so many things that we read in the literature. You know, you just have to have faith. Just faith. Faith in what? Faith in what? <laughs> It's just sort of a blind faith that, no, that doesn't work. Abraham's faith was not some leap in the dark. Abraham had faith in the fact that God said, God promised something. Uh, our faith has to be rooted in what God says. And Abraham had a promise from God that he would have this child. So it wasn't an, a, a kind of a, it wasn't irrational or baseless or anything, but it was certainly flat in the face of normal human expectation to be that old. But so it, it, he, he had to trust God's promises over what was normal or natural. The consequence of Abraham's faith, and so Paul says here, and so, was he became the father of many nations. So this clinging to his faith, trusting God, which is what we're counted on to do in all kinds of difficult circumstances and times, it uh, resulted in the fulfillment of what he had been promised. Verse 19, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. These verses explain that the way in which Abraham believed against all hope and in hope. Abraham's faith was placed in a God who, contrary to nature, could give procreative powers to his aged servant's body. So the, the, you know, Abraham's body, as far as the fathering of children was concerned, was you know, as good as dead. And he says deadness also characterized Sarah's womb here. But Abraham, even though he was fully aware, it says, of her inabilities, looked away from that and focused on the promise of God. Because Abraham refused to waver in disbelief, he was strengthened in his faith. In what way was Abraham's faith strengthened? Well, Abraham's faith was strengthened in the sense that anything <clears throat> gains strength in meeting opposition, meeting obstacles, 
and overcoming them. So our muscles can be strengthened by lifting weights, by overcoming the weight and lifting that, that, that opposition that we face. Holiness is strengthened when temptation is resisted. Uh, our trust in God, our faith to believe God is strengthened as we trust God, as we go from faith to faith, as we go from one experience to another. Hopefully, as we grow older in age, we're growing stronger in our faith. We have had enough experiences with God, trusted God in trials and difficulties that our faith is strengthened. And this enables us to carry on in even more difficult times. So Abraham gained strength from his victory over this hindrance created by this conflict between, you know, God's promise and the physical evidence. And in doing that, by strengthening of his faith, he gave glory to God. Paul's insistence, I say here, that Abraham did not waver through unbelief may seem inconsistent with Abraham's disbelieving and scornful laughter at God's promise in Genesis 17, 17. Paul's point, however, is not that Abraham was a perfect person or never had any doubts at all, but that his heart attitude was consistently one of faith and hope in the promise of God. That's true for us as Christians. We fail sometimes. We don't display the trust that we should, but if we're truly born again, if we're truly regenerate, if we're truly trusting God, you know, we'll turn ourselves around. We'll, we may go through a difficult experience where we fail to trust God as we should, but we learn from that. And that's very helpful. It was for Abraham. According to verse 21, it was Abraham's conviction that God is fully able to do whatever he promised that enabled Abraham's faith to overcome the obstacle of the tangible and visible facts. Verse 22, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. So here's the conclusion from verses 17b through 21. The faith that Abraham exercised in Genesis 15, 6 is exemplified in the events of Abraham's life detailed in verses 17b through 21. That's true for us. We start out by faith in Christ, and that faith uh, can grow and is strengthened as time goes along. So Paul has now entered his historical narrative, his, his historical exposition of Abraham, and now he's going to apply that to us as Christian believers. He says, uh, we're going to see uh, Abraham's faith was typical of the Christian's faith. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, Paul says in Genesis 15, 6, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So the re relevance of Abraham's experience for the situation of the Christian is now stated. The point is that the Christian's faith, since it is faith in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the day, dead, is essentially like that of Abraham. Abraham believed in someone who could raise from the dead, raise up someone from the dead, raise, make, take something that was not there, impossible, and bring Isaac about. Let me see if I can uh, <laughs> clear all that off. Okay. Um, 
So we share this uh, same faith of Abraham by justification, faith. We have the same object of faith as Abraham did. Um, we talked about, remember last time, salvation. We have the same salvation. Our object is God. Our means is faith and so forth. Essentially the same. Verse 25. He was delivered over to death. We're talking about our Lord Jesus Christ in the latter part of verse 24. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, he, that is Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The word for in the first clause means because. The second indicates probably purpose. He was delivered over to death because of our sins and was raised to life purpose in order that we might be justified. All right. Uh, <laughs> I guess I gotta. Well, I lost my arrow here. <laughs> I lost my pointer. Uh, let's see here. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Can you believe that I lost my, my mouse here, Pansy? <laughs> Is it up or down or sideways? I don't see it. I can't see it anywhere. Let's see. I can't escape here. It looks like it's there, isn't it? But it's just not showing up. That's what it looks like. Yeah, it looks like it's just for some reason. Can you just keep going instead? I can't. Uh... Okay, now I got it back. Let me share again. Yeah, I lost my pointer there for a minute. Sorry about that. All right. So now we're ready for the second section here. Um, sanctification. We're ready for Romans 5 through 8. So the first section, essentially 1 through 4, was the revelation of the righteousness. So we noticed that Habakkuk 4, we said, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. So we were talking about the one who is righteous by faith. How do you get this righteousness by faith? How, do you, how are you justified? And now we are looking at the second part, that is living shall live. Paul says shall, shall have life, shall live eternally. And that's this doctrine of sanctification and ultimately glorification, as we'll see. And that's chapters 5 through chapter 8. I say here, uh, in chapters 5 through 8, Paul invites the Christian to join him in joyful thanksgiving for what the gospel provides, a new life given to God's service in his life and a certain glorious hope for the life to come. The assurance of glory is the overarching theme in this second major section of Romans. So this verdict of justification which Jews relegated to the last day. 
that Roman Catholics really relegate to the last day, that Jews relegate to the last day, Paul says has already been rendered. We, we can have assurance of salvation now because the, the verdict of justification has been rendered the verdict of righteousness has been rendered over those who trust in Jesus. Uh, I mentioned here that this is uh, from uh, Doug Moo's book, one of Doug Moo's book. I kind of, I, I don't know, it's kind of a helpful way to see the connection in chapters five through eight. You might find it somewhat helpful too, I'm not sure, but the emphasis on this word glory, as we'll see, glory. We believers can be assured we will experience future glory. We're talking about glorification. We will experience this future glory. We've all sinned, as we saw, and we've come short of the glory of God. So the image of God was marred in the, in the, uh, in the fall. And so we're in the image of God, but it's an image that's being restored now in our lives through sanctification and will be completed one day in glorification, when we reach heaven, see Christ, uh, we can be assured that we're going to experience this future glory. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. We want to be assured. We want assurance of salvation. And then he goes into a, a kind of a subsection. We can have this assurance because we have new life in Christ. It's because we're in Christ, not in Adam. All who are in Christ are going to share in this future glory. Then he talks and talks about the two, uh, two things here. Sin cannot keep us from this glory. We're no longer in bondage to it. So sin can't keep us from this glory, even though we have to deal with sin, we have a problem with sin. It can't keep us from this glory. And see, the law cannot keep us from this glory. We're no longer in bondage to it. We'll see what that means. B, because we are in Christ, we kind of come back to that B, this is B prime, B1, B prime. Uh, because we are in Christ, uh, we, are sure, we are sure of life for the Spirit conquers the power of sin, law, and death. And then finally, A prime, we believers can be assured we will experience future glory. So it comes back in chapter 8 to the same sort of exact theme, but restated in a different way. So, our first topic under chapter 5 through 8 is what we might call a life characterized by the hope of glory. We have something to look forward to. We're looking for that future glory. Paul now turns to celebrate the blessings given to the justified believer. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith. Okay, we're finished with that. We know what chapters 1 through 4 were all about because Paul tells us, since we have been justified by faith, therefore we have certain blessings that come to us because of that. So Paul now turns to the blessings given to the justified. He highlights two particular blessings in chapter 5. Peace with God, or another term for that is reconciliation. Paul will talk about, he'll use the phrase peace with God, but also we say we're reconciled. And hope. We have hope, we have peace. The former theme occurs at the beginning, that is peace with God, and at the end, he returns to it 
and the latter, that is hope, is sort of in the middle. Let's look at that. A life characterized by the hope of glory, and the first one is peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, chapters 1 through 4, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I say the opening phrase of Romans 5 provides a transition between what has gone before in chapters 1 through 4 and what is to follow in 5 through 8. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, first of all, sums up the central teachings of 1 through 4. But being dependent as it is upon the phrase that follows, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, it presents justification by faith as a blessing experienced by Paul's readers. So Paul is viewing justification, as I said, as a past event, as a past reality for Christians. And that's his perspective he maintains throughout chapters 5 through 8. Uh, justification by faith gives us a new status, but it's a once and for all act. It's complete, it's finished, it happens the moment we're saved. We are acquitted from our sins, giving, given a righteousness in Christ. But what is the exact nature of that status in Christ? Okay, we, we're forgiven our sins, we have this new status. What is the exact nature? What are the implications of this status for the future? What is the implication for our present lives? How does this justification, this and the blessings that flow from it, how do they affect us now? Um, because, you know, we, we initially saved, if you can remember back when you were initially saved, it was some years ago, you have this great deliverance and so forth. Well, what happens now? Uh, how does all this affect us now? And I say here, the first implication of our justification is that we have peace with God. The tense of the verb, have, points up that we have this peace now as an immediate and abiding possession. Peace with God speaks of a relationship with God, not subjective feelings or a state of mind. The latter, Paul does talk about as the peace of God. But here we're talking about peace with God. Now, this is a wonderful thing, as Paul will explain it later, especially in verse 11, that you and I have peace with God. I mean, this, 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 this can help you sleep. <laughs> it's the only thing that should allow you to sleep at night. You can put your head on the pillow and know you have peace with God. God is not angry with you or me. He's not angry with us. He's, he has, there's no wrath. We're never going to see God's wrath, and this is a wonderful thing. So we have this peace. Now, as I say, that's different from uh, what's called the peace of God. Um, that that uh, the, the, the peace with God means we've been brought into a state of favor and acceptance of God. We're no longer at war with God. We're not objects of his wrath. We're now sons of God. We're re reconciled and so forth. Paul does talk about the peace of, um, uh, peace of, peace of God, but I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold that till we get to, to a little later here. But uh, um, well, I mean, let me go ahead and mention that now because I'll say it. 
we, we know that phrase, that phrase occurs in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, where Paul says, uh, don't be anxious uh, about anything. Um, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So there is a subjective state to our salvation, as we'll see, we're going to talk about that in sanctification here. There is uh, the, the peace of God, that is a subjective feeling, a sense of well-being, and so forth, that comes to us as we pray, as we trust God, as we depend upon Him. Many times, obviously, we're not at peace. We're, we're upset, we're flabbergasted, and we have trials and so forth like that. And Paul is urging here, you shouldn't be anxious. You should uh, present things to God in prayer, trust him. And then you will have, you will have an inner peace about that. Eventually God will guard your hearts, but that's, I'm just saying, that's not what we're seeing here. This peace of God is something that we have as acceptance to God. We're no longer at war with God. God's not at war with us. We have favor with him. We, we're not object of his wrath, and that's a tremendous, tremendous blessing. Uh, 2A here. Through whom, that is Christ, we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Just as it's through our Lord Jesus Christ that we enjoy peace with God, so it's through him also that we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The word access could be translated introduction. We've been gained an introduction, might be Paul's thought. Instead of saying we have gained an introduction to God, Paul says we've gained an introduction to grace. Grace denotes the state or realm into which God's redeeming work transfers the believer. So we're now living in the realm or the state of grace. Paul says uh, not only do we have peace with God, but we have hope, what he calls joyful hope. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we have peace, we, have, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Hope may be defined as sure and confident, certain confidence, sure and, com sure, sure and certain confidence, expectation, or a confident expectation. We have this, we boast in the confident expectation that one day we'll experience this glory of God sharing in the glory of God. One translation says, hope we have a sharing in God's glory. As we, I just mentioned, 323 says we have come short of that state of God-likeness. That's been lost through the fall, but now is being restored through sanctification, the image of God, and will be fully restored at the rapture or when we go to heaven. Uh, Romans 8, 17, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul says in 18, the glory that we will revealed in us. So we're, we boast in the hope and the confident expectation that we will receive, experience this glory of God. The word boast, I say, is difficult to translate. Boasting is condemned if its purpose is to exalt fallen human beings or, achieve, or human achievement. But boasting because of God's grace and to bring glory to God is allowed. The idea might be that of joyful confidence. We can have joyful confidence. We can boast in that sense. It's the idea of exalting because of our confidence in the coming glory. A joyful confidence 
is, and this prospect should be the mark of every believer. So it helps us to overcome uh, our frustration at our present failure to be all that God would want us to be because we have this confident expectation of the glory of God. Not only so, not only is that so, Paul says in verse three, but we also glory in our sufferings hmm. because we know that suffering produces perseverance. This hope, Paul says, is actually enhanced not destroyed or negated by present suffering. Now here the word suffering is much more than, you know, just physical suffering. It depicts the pressure put upon the believer in a godless and hostile world. So it's, it's more than physical suffering. It's all the trials and tribulations and difficulties. And Paul says the believer should boast or exult <clears throat> or be joyful, not only in the hope of the glory of God, but also in their suffering in the present circumstances. Now, why can we rejoice in this suffering? Because we know that beneficial results will come. It's, it's hard because, you know, we, I, I, I'm sure if you're like me, you, you wish life were simple and easy and not so hard and there weren't these difficulties that come into our life. But Paul says we can rejoice because there are going to be benefits that come when, these, uh, when the suffering is met with the right attitude, with a confidence and rejoicing. I say here, uh, suffering when endured and the strength of God produces perseverance. The Greek word speaks of endurance or perseverance, the spiritual fortitude that bears up under and is indeed made even stronger by suffering. It suggests the ability to endure, a kind of stick to itness that's required if the God is to produce fruit in us. Remember Luke 8, 15, but on the seed, but the seed on the soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. It suggests the kind of long distance marathoners endurance that will enable us to run the race, you know, set before us right to the finish line. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we have, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. So Paul says these are great qualities that can come to us uh, in even in our suffering. And the one, one that he starts here, first of all, is perseverance. And this is a tremendous, tremendous character quality in a person. You know, I mean, that's the thing that, that, I, that I look back on my life. And the kind of Christians that you admire and look up to are those Christians who persevere, even, you know, in difficult times, hard times, troubles throughout their life. They have kind of a stick to in their experience with God that's, that's very appealing, very admirable. They're not, you know, always complaining and harping. I mean, we all get there to that. We always do. All of us do that because we, we're just human. But we see people who have this persevering spirit that, that, that is just a, such an admirable and uh, a quality that uh, 
is so helpful to us as we observe it. So Paul says, uh, we know that suffering produces perseverance. In verse 4, perseverance produces character and character hope. I say a perseverance in turn, well, if our attitude is right, yeah, if we persevere with the right attitude in our difficulties and our troubles and sufferings, it's going to produce character. The Greek word means tested character, the quality of having been proved. Character might be defined as moral virtue. As a result of this tested character, the Christian who responds to suffering with the proper attitude will find at the end of the line that their hope has been strengthening. So Paul is saying here that suffering, rather than threatening or weakening our hope, as we would expect the case to be, we might naturally think, well, this suffering is going to destroy our hope. It's going to weaken our hope. He says uh, it's going to increase our hope. Why does this tested character ultimately produce this hope that he talks about here? Uh, because the growth of our godly character is sure evidence that we have really been changed by God. There's how you really know a saved person. It's their character, their godly character. If they have that, that's sure evidence that they've been changed by God. And it assures us, you know, if we have that, if we, in our own lives, it assures us that the hope of our future glory is not an illusion. We, 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 see our, we see God is working in our lives and changing us. We are able to persevere in difficult times. That gives us moral virtue, changes us, and that results in hope, hope of future glory. As Paul says, uh, Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I see here, because God so works in our lives and because we so desperately want this kind of character and hope, we should glory in our sufferings, as he said. Uh, it's been the common, I think, experience of many Christians down through the years that these virtues are of greater value in comparison to the earthly trouble that we have to endure. James 1, 2, 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And Paul says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The idea of put to shame here is a phrase taken from the Old Testament where those who trust in God are assured they will not be put to shame, but their confidence in God will ultimately be vindicated at the final judgment. Places like Psalm 22, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. So the Christian need not fear that he will be disappointed in the sense of the foundation on which he has built his life and hope for eternal blessings should prove inadequate. The reason why we can be so confident in our hope is based on our experience of the unfailing love of God, God's love for us. This love 
explains Paul, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is to say, it's through the indwelling Holy Spirit that we all receive that salvation, that God's love for us has been brought home to our hearts and realized in us. Uh, this is accomplished in our lives by the work of the Spirit in his work of illumination, that in, in his work through Scripture. Uh, we read the scripture and the spirit assures us of what is written there is true. And the Bible says that God loves us. And the spirit is the one who has been given to us, who illuminates our hearts and minds to accept that is true, to believe that. The, the spirit gives us assurance that God's love for us is true. As Paul says later, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Let me finish this last verse. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So added to this inward appreciation is the objective historical demonstration of God's love for us on the cross of Christ. So we have this inward assurance by the Spirit, but we also have this historical demonstration of God's love on the cross, which Paul now explains in verses 6 through 8. Paul's thought can be summarized as follows. Human love at its best will motivate a person to give his life for a truly good person. Christ, sent by God, died for not for righteous people, not even for good people, but for rebellious and undeserving people. <clears throat> Therefore, God's love is far greater in its magnitude and dependability than even the greatest human love. Paul apparently is making a distinction here. Notice between a good person and a righteous person. There's, it seems kind of opposite to us. Christ died. Very rarely will anyone die <coughs> for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might be willing to die. We might think that should be reversed, that righteous is a higher level, higher level of person than a good person. But I say here, apparently Paul's making distinction between a good person and a righteous person. There's extra biblical evidence that the word for good could sometimes denote a person a more positive quality than the word for righteous. Paul says someone might be willing to die for a righteous person. Uh, someone might be willing to die for a good person, but, but you know, not for just a righteous person. Rarely will someone die for a righteous person, but for a good person, they might be willing to die. So good is above righteous here, as I'm trying to fumble through here. So there is evidence that good is sometimes a more positive quality than righteous. The idea is that a righteous person might be someone in our, who claims our respect, who, but a good person suggests someone who is more intimately connected with us, a person with whom we have a strong personal relationship. So we might, someone might be willing to die for someone out there who is righteous, They're, they seem to be a good person, but this good person is someone who has helped us, we have a strong relationship. However, in contrast to the self-oriented nature of even the best in human love is the incredible grace of God's love. 
This love is demonstrated or proved in Christ dying for sinners. So we have this objective historical evidence of God's love, and we have God's love brought home to our hearts by the Spirit, this assurance.